Hello and welcome to series three of the Training for Influence podcast. This series is all about the importance of emotional resilience in frontline services, as requested by you, our listeners. In this series, we hope to unearth real stories of both avoiding burnout and rebuilding after it. Our aim is to share positive thoughts and ideas that will inspire, protect and motivate frontline professionals. So thank you so much for giving up your time to talk about emotional resilience with me today, Mary. It's really appreciated. No, I'm really excited. Thank you for having me. So Mary, the theme of our Series 3 podcast is emotional resilience. And the reason why this is the theme is because we went out to our clients and we said what would be useful at the moment and when we went out to people it was back in November and resoundingly people said to us we really want to talk about emotional resilience mental well-being and actually the recognition based on the fact that most of our clients are frontline key working individuals recognition that life is hard at the moment Mm -hmm. so what we've been doing and I know that you've listened to some is just talking Mm -hmm. to people some of them on the front line and some of them who work in professional roles and support people's emotional well-being. Mm-hmm. And we've been just getting stories and asking them to share their stories as much as they're happy with mm-hmm. and to also then share their top tips. So the podcast, although they can go quite deep, do absolutely aim to kind of be inspirational and supportive mm-hmm. and help people who are struggling to feel not so alone and to recognize that there are things that they can personally do or look to others for support. Mm. So that is exactly why I invited you here today, because <laughs> I've read your book. It is phenomenal. It's called It Begins With You. So if you haven't read it or you haven't heard of it, in a moment, I'll ask Mary <laughs> to introduce herself and she can tell you a little bit about that. But that's why I invited you here today, because when I read the book, everything in it just completely connected with what Mm. we're saying within these podcasts. It absolutely begins with you. And as key Mm. workers, we give to other people all of the time. And quite often, key workers really don't Mm. recognize the importance of looking after themselves Mm. because they're so empathic to other people. So nice long intro there, but putting a little bit of context to why I invited you here today. Mm. I'd love if if you wouldn't mind just telling our listeners Mm. a little bit about yourself, a little bit about what you do and about your wonderful book. Mm. So the book came about really because I realised that working with all the clients that I worked with, they were always these kind of five key things that seemed to be kind of news to them, but very obvious to me. And so I realized that actually, if I could just put these five things into a book, it would just allow so many more people to access, you know, that information, whether they were working with me or not. And those sort of five principles were understanding how you think. So basically understanding how does your brain work, a bit of neuroscience, but not not too much, but actually understanding, you know, how is it that we develop the beliefs and behaviors that we have? Where does it stem from? And importantly, you know, how do we kind of unwind some of those? The second principle, clear your past. Our past, as you know, is hugely relevant to the people that we end up being. And actually giving people the information, again, looking at some of the science around it of why that is the case. Because I think, it, you know, it's very obvious for us to go, you know, my childhood matters or this thing that this person said matters, but why? And so it takes you on that journey from sort of baby all the way up to adulthood as to why, why all of your past affects you. And then I call it kind of the central point. That's why it's number three was, you know, how to find your self-worth. And, you know, for me, that's where the it begins with you comes from. 
you have to have great self-worth about yourself to to pick the right partners you know to to know what you deserve in the world to know how you deserve to be treated and that's as much partners as it is kind of bullying bosses and how you treat yourself being a really key element of that too and the third one was understanding the nuances of control. And that was recognizing both in my own life and other people's about how we have self-control, but how do we control others? And again, how do we let others control us? And I think that's quite an unusual point, actually, in people who are kind of familiar with the sort of coaching therapy world. But I think control is really important. And then the fifth one was almost a sort of, and when you've sorted all of this stuff out, how do you make great decisions and how do you communicate them? Because I think, again, those two are really key. And it came from my own journey. So my journey was that I had quite a difficult childhood, which I talk a bit about in the book. My mum was very obviously mentally unwell, but clever enough to evade capture as it was, is sort of what we used to joke. You know, very, very bright woman who just grew up with mental health issues that were not picked up in the 40s and 50s. You know, that age actually came from quite an affluent family who I think kind of tried to hide it quite a lot. I was a young mum at 17, had three children by the age of 21. And I've had two decade-long marriages and divorces and then went on to have another two children. So now I have five children. And I just found that through my own journey, being able to kind of look at myself and recognizing that I had beliefs and behaviors that I didn't like. I just didn't like them about myself. It was to be very, very quick to anger. Didn't happen often, but if it happened, a friend once said, you go not nuclear. I was like, yeah, I do. When when I was reading your book, though, that absolutely chimed with me because, mm-hmm. yeah, I go from naught to nuclear. And actually, there was a part in your book where you described that. And you'd also described the fact that when you were nuclear, there came a point when you knew you were nuclear, but mm-hmm. you, even in that moment, you yeah. couldn't help yourself. Yeah. And I just kind of went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because quite a lot of people resonate with that. And I think anger is a really taboo subject. And I remember, so one of my sort of jobs just before I came and started my own business was working in schools. And I used to cover 11 primary schools and two secondary schools. And I was a kind of school owned family worker, which was great because they just left me to get on with it. But I used to work with parents and kids who were having real issues. And as part of that, I used to run an anger management course for kids who would just lose it in school. And I remember going into the school one day and I'd spent so much time making anger. You know, we are happy, we are angry, we're delighted, we're sad. You know, these are all words so we can be all of these things. Anger is not a terrible word. And I walked in and said to the receptionist, I'm here to run the anger course. And she went, oh, we're not using that word. And I went, what word? I'm I'm here to run the anger course. And she went, we're not using that word. And I said, course. (laughs) She went, no, anger. We're not using the word anger. And they had put a ban on using the word anger in school. So the children were not allowed to say, I feel angry. And I just said, I can't run the course then. I'm trying to normalize this. Yeah, (laughs) It was just crazy. So yeah, so it was my own journey sort of brought me up here, recognizing that actually I had had this background and then I'd had, you know, quite a challenging life and I knew I was a strong person, but yet I just could never quite seem to get where I wanted to get. Myself held me back. And so for me, it was finding not only training as a coach, but then as a cognitive hypnotherapist and then as a mediator and actually bringing all those three together and recognizing that if you delve into your unconscious, that's where you start to solve it. And that's where I solved my anger. Now, I have to say, if I get cross, I still shout sometimes, but I never do the not nuclear. I never do that anymore. So, yes, I'm really passionate about resilience. Really, really passionate about it. 
So I think everything that you said there, the reason why your book and your teachings, I guess, resonate with me is because very much at TAGE, you know, with the Training for Influence methodology, we talk about experts by experience. Mm. And for some of us, that's personal experience. Some of that's professional experience. Some of that is all of that merged together. And you've done exactly what we talk about. You've taken kind of your personal experience mm. that's influenced the direction you've gone in professionally. You've talked there about when you were a frontline key working professional, mm. and then you've taken the experience from that. Mm. And now you're teaching it to other people. Now, granted, you're not teaching it to other people in the same way as Tay is delivering courses mm. or such mm. like, but actually you can argue that the methodology mm. is very similar and mm. the journey is mm. very similar. And I think it's really powerful that when we look back and we consider kind of all of those aspects and we think particularly the fact that the majority of the people listening to this podcast will be key working individuals on the front line or within that organisation. So they might be a leader within a charitable service. They might be a leader within the police. They might be somebody working on the front line within homeless services. And it all connects together to your journey. And I think when you're that naught to nuclear that you talk about, actually, I've seen that in my own life, professionally and personally. Mm. And I do think we respond differently in different circumstances mm. because we have parameters. Mm. When my resilience is low, yeah. that's when I really struggle. Yeah. And I think from a professional's perspective, actually, we owe our service users mm. the best version of ourselves. Mm. And that's where the It Begins With You chimes with me, because mm. if we're not looking after ourselves, if we're not investing in our resilience, mm. then actually our service users do not get the best version of ourselves. Mm. The same way our children don't. You know, I know that when I'm snowed under at work, I'm a lot shorter with my children, for instance. And that's why I think the two elements chime together so strongly for me, mm. because I recognise the importance of that. And I think, you know, I was talking to um, somebody just this morning and we were talking about, you know, I was saying that, you know, I've worked with financial directors and they, they come in and they're doing therapeutic work on themselves. And, you know, they're distracted because actually their 15 year old's gone off and got drunk and vomited on someone's carpet. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And actually we stop and we do the parenting work, you know, and if your relationship isn't working well, it doesn't matter how great you're doing and work. If your relationship isn't working well, then actually that's going to be what's on your mind. And I think what I started to find was, you know, because I'd had this kind of weird and wonderful background that actually I could bring that to the work. And it just meant that people had a one stop shop because yeah, if you think, well, I have to be this great leader in work and I almost have to kind of disassociate from my children and my partner because I'm not doing so well there, then you become imbalanced and actually then you don't lead that well. And if you're giving all of your attention to your family and your partner, then either you need to rethink your career or actually allow yourself to come over into your business life and hold it there. And I think, you know, one of the first things that I did when COVID kicked off was I did a couple of recordings, which are actually still on my website. And I did them for frontline workers. And they are recordings that they can just plug in and go to sleep and listen to. And it is just about saying you have done your best. And you may feel that your best is not good enough, but you have absolutely done your best you are allowed to step away from whatever you've seen or done today. And you might look back and go in a nice relaxed state when it wasn't COVID or it wasn't the pressure that I'm under, you know, whatever your role is, you know, maybe I would have done this and it would have been better, but this is what I have right now. And yeah. this is my capability. And I think definitely for me last January, as in 2020, 
you know, I almost was at burnout. So I'd had a really busy kind of five years with my kids. They'd had glandular fever. They'd had health problems. You know, you name it. I was in the still really the kind of fairly early days of having a business. And then my mum died, you know, and I can remember getting to that January and literally just going, I can't focus and I can't concentrate. And actually, I just immediately took action. And I think that's what people sometimes don't do is they don't allow themselves to take action because they think, yeah, there's so many people out there I should be helping. And I turned down clients, I reduced my workload, I put in loads of downtime, I saw my own therapist more. And it wasn't that I felt I didn't have resilience, it was that I knew I didn't have enough resilience at that moment. And that's, I guess, something I wanted to talk about is that I think every single human being has resilience. And, you know, people say, oh, my resilience isn't very good. And I, and I feel like kind of going, no, you just haven't realized where it's hidden. You know, yeah, you have this bucket of resilience, but it's like in a cupboard somewhere and you haven't worked out you got the cupboard and it is there. And I, you know, I really feel for a lot of the frontline workers because I think, and actually in some respects, the fact that everybody's looking to them and praising them all the time. I think that's a bit of a double-edged sword because actually they need to be able to go home and leave behind what's happened, let go of it and be with their family and be with themselves. And I think there's almost the guilt people I've spoken to said, you know, I feel like if I'm sitting there for two hours in the evening, I could actually be at work saving lives. And I'm like, yeah, but you are allowed to go and sit for two hours and it will probably make you save more lives the next day. So I think it's a, it's a fascinating subject. I think it's interesting. So there's a couple of things with what you said that I want to reflect on. Mm. So first of all, I've listened to the recordings on your website Mm. and I would absolutely recommend that people go and download them, listen to them and listen to them. For me, it's as I'm falling to sleep. Mm. So I struggle to switch off my brain at night because Mm. there's oh so many more things I can Mm. be doing or, you know, I want to impact this or I want Mm. to influence that. And Mm. And actually, if if I don't get a decent night's sleep, the next time I'm useless. And so Mm. I struggle to switch off my brain. So your recordings help me Mm. to be able to switch off my brain. Mm. But because they talk to, I guess, within Tate, we've only got kind of a couple of statements that you'll find everywhere. And one of them is, if you've done everything you can within the constraints of your role, Mm. that's enough. Mm. And that was the hugest lesson for me to learn. Mm. And I actually mm. learned that lesson when I was stood in Morrison's with my two and a half year old child and somebody rung me from a homeless hostel that I was the manager of. Mm. And one of the young lads had tried to harm himself mm. and they had rung me rather than ring the ambulance service. Yeah. And as part of that with my two and a half year old where these mm. worlds just mm. collided and I was like, what do I do? Where do I go? And actually thankfully at that point I did the right thing Mm. and said get off the phone to me and ring 999 I'll be there as soon as I can but I need Mm. to talk my daughter etc but there was absolutely this guilt of Mm. I need to go there now but I can't and I had to learn very quickly after Mm. that I had to put parameters in place that actually within the constraints of my role if Mm. I've done everything Mm. I can I need to allow myself to switch off. Mm. Otherwise, I'm going to burn out. And your recordings talk to that and talk to that because it is, it truly is guilt that sits in my stomach that I have to try and unpick Mm. and go, no, this is you manifesting that guilt in your stomach. This isn't real. (laughs) Mm. And so I think there is something conscious Mm. about that, that Mm. we all need to kind of take Mm. a a little bit of responsibility Mm. and recognition that Mm. if we give, 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 give all of the time, then actually the, I don't want to say the benefits attached to that giving, they become weaker and weaker each time. You know, the the quality of that giving Mm. becomes weaker Mm. and weaker each time. Yeah, And it's a bit, you know, that balance Mm. ourselves can be quite difficult. 
Yeah, and I remember it reminds me of a story. So when I when I was a family worker, I had an amazing boss who I talk about in the book. And he said to me, you can go off and you can do your work with your families. But what you need to do is, you know, you can go home and pick your kids up from school. And then you can after school, you can pick up your paperwork in the evening. So he was just amazing. And so I got to do that. And of course, the problem with that, and I'm sure there's so many parents out there, is that I then didn't monitor my hours. And we also realized that he'd taken some advice about how many caseloads I was meant to have. And so I was given 26 cases between all these schools and then afterwards found out actually should have been 12. But because the role had been taken on that, had been funded on that, you know, in some respects, I had to manage that. And I remember one day sitting in his office and just crying and saying, and I've got this family that need this and this family that need that. And I haven't seen my own children properly in like three weeks, whatever. And he said to me, how many hours are you doing, Mary? And because I was saying, you know, I'm working at weekends or whatever. And he said, next week, he said, I need you to timetable it. And I was doing 60 hours because I was just so grateful to be working around my kids. I just wasn't monitoring it. And he just said to me, he said, this is a really harsh fact. And he said, before you were here, because it was a new role, he said, these families got by. And he said, and what you're doing is life changing, but they will be okay. And I found it so hard to know that I could do more and more and more and more for every single family I worked with. And I was time limited. And it was, it was something that I had to learn, which was actually, I'm now not here for my children, you know, and I'm stressed and I'm not sleeping and I'm dreaming about my caseload. The reason I did those recordings was because very early on when COVID struck, I was watching all these poor nurses and doctors and people sleeping on the floors and saying, even when I'm home, I can't switch off anyway. And so the recordings were designed, as you said, for people to be able to go, and this is going to be my wind down that's going to allow me to step back into my life. Um, And I think that's really key. Well, there's a kind of irony, isn't there, that we give, 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 and Mm. actually behind closed doors, sometimes our own family are missing out yeah Yeah. and I see that time and time again Mm. when when I'm talking to people Mm. and I found myself in that position Mm. earlier on Mm. in the year when COVID hit and we were a face-to-face training company and I'd got on my pedestal and said Mm. we're never doing e-learning because Mm. for the subjects that we train it needs to be debated and we need to Mm. kind of be able to really push against stereotypes and have these discussions and blah blah all of that and then suddenly we needed to develop to be able to deliver live online. Mm. And so all hands were to the deck. Mm. And I got to just before the summer holiday and the guilt, because one of the things that matters most in the world to me, if not the thing that matters mm. more than anything in the world, is being a good mum. Mm. And the guilt had just eaten me up because I knew whilst I was I was in the same house yeah. as my children all of the time. <laughs> um, but actually, they were seeing me for about three minutes a day. And mm. I think actually in that three minutes, I was going, have you done the dishwasher? Have you folded up the tumble dryer? <laughs> have you done your homework? <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, wow. Yeah. And so that's when mm. I then went, right, I'm spending every penny I've got and I'm buying a camper van and mm. I need to do something about mm. this. Now, at this point, I'm in a reasonably luxurious position that I could make that decision mm. and I could work on the road mm. and I could rebalance mm. things. But it's not unusual for somebody who works within any type of caring profession mm. to sit down and recognise and feel immense mm. pressure and guilt from the fact that they're giving so much to other mm. people mm. under the disguise of, will they need it more? They're mm. in crisis or whatever, where actually at home, your own family is struggling. Yeah. Um, and so 
that balance a really kind of complex mm. balance to try and keep mm. and I think when you talk about being able to really have these parameters and to be able to recognize the importance mm. of looking after yourself first yeah. you describe it in a way that removes that guilt mm. to an extent mm. and I really like that because I'm brilliant at talking a good talk but very honestly and you know do you know we've talked about this brilliant at talking a good talk we've got a whole bloody podcast series on it for goodness sake <laughs> not that great at walking a good walk mm-hmm. do you know and I'm getting better yeah because I'm learning about myself yeah. and I'm learning what I need mm-hmm. and what works for me and also yeah. I've been in positions where I absolutely mm-hmm. have tripped over and, and metaphorically fallen flat on my face mm-hmm. and burnt out because I haven't recognized yeah what I need or what my family need or actually how I'm much better for everybody else who wants or needs a bit of me mm. if I'm also giving to myself as yeah. well and I think for me that was just so the core of the book and it's so the core of you know all the clients I work with I quite often say to them can we just put that issue over here and we'll do the self-worth because when you recognize that you're worth it you look after yourself and I can definitely say you know coming out of Christmas this year it was my mum's first January of her death you know we've got some personal stuff that you know about you know that we're going through and I thought I'm going to burn out again if I'm not careful And the first thing I did was, you know, I signed up to do some personal training sessions. I started walking outside, you know, I started to eat better, made myself sleep better. And, you know, really within two or three weeks, just those few changes of valuing myself. And it was hard to take that time out of the kind of the light and the daytime to to go out and look after myself. My whole mental health had changed and, you know, my drive had come back and I was much more on top of things. And I'm like you, you know, I I get lost in what I do because I love it. And actually, you know, my family laugh at me because on my phone, I have multiple alarms. So I have an alarm at 8.30 that says, go cuddle the kids. And that's because often I won't have seen them all day. And my son's not a big talker, you know, he's a, he's a 15 year old. But what he does want is he wants cuddle. And we sit and we watch a couple of episodes of something junky on telly. And that's our time, you know. And then I go up and I give my daughter a cuddle and we have more of a sort of chat. And then I have another alarm at nine that says, send kids upstairs. And so I realized quite early on in lockdown, there was no personal space for me at all because my kids are up as late as I am. So I just said to them, you have to go upstairs. You'll have to go to bed, but you have to go upstairs. And I literally, I protect that kind of couple of hours. It is my time. And then at half nine, 10, I have another alarm that says, go and kiss them goodnight. Cause I like to do that. I've always done it. I have an alarm at 10.30 that says, Mary, go to bed. (laughs) And then I have another alarm at 11.30 that says, turn out the lights, gorgeous. (laughs) And my alarm is like, beep, 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 beep all evening. And my kids laugh at me. But do you know what? It works for me. And it just is that reminder that I need to go look after yourself, go to sleep, go and do this thing that makes you feel good. Go kiss the kids. Because actually my brain, you know, I'm busy brained person. But I protect that downtime. And you know what I found is literally, and I say this to clients, if you take that time out, you will more than gain it back in. You know, I know that by getting eight hours sleep a night, having that little bit of downtime, going and exercising, eating well, I gain that so much more in productivity and efficiency if you want to break it down to the kind of business element of it. And I'm a better mum. I was going to say, it's really interesting because actually, logically, it's at odds, isn't it? Do you know, you're spending less time working or you're spending less time going out and Mm. doing what you need to do and Mm. working with your clients and such like. And so actually it's at odds. And so that's something I've had to literally train Mm. myself and Mm. say time and time again, because naturally it doesn't fit. And also if you look at kind of going back to what you said about your old boss, actually, 
if you look at society and mm. the way that society is made up the majority of people get paid per hour yeah and so if you then look at mm. what you're saying and what I'm saying about mm. actually the quality of service that mm. we're giving and if we're key workers yeah. our service users need the very best of us and deserve the very mm. best of us mm. but we're paid hourly mm. so surely mm. by taking some mm. of that time off then what we're yeah. providing is less yeah. now you know and I know that that's not true mm. at all there's no wonder from every every age kind of as soon as you are aware of the working world mm-hmm. that we actually look at quality and connect it with time because that's yeah, we do enumerated mm-hmm. for it I'd like to take a brief interval from talking to our wonderful guest today to tell you a little bit about Tay Training and Training for Influence. Tay Training exists to help you deliver exceptional services, services that have the ability to influence the lives of the most complex and vulnerable. All of our facilitators are operational experts. They tailor the training to your needs. They make it engaging and interactive And really importantly, it's delivered from a values-led perspective. This is the Training for Influence methodology, which we created to have added influence on the sector. We recognise the importance of building the emotional resilience of frontline professionals, influencing their values and supporting them to make values-based decisions. So we made this the golden thread of our training methodology. We truly believe that frontline professionals are perfectly positioned to positively influence the most complex of lives. But to be able to do that, we need to help them be the best that they can be. So training for influence is our creative solution. It can be overlaid onto any training course and means that frontline professionals, whether they're attending mandatory or specialist training, will have their emotional resilience built and their values positively influenced. And I think also, you know, with with a lot of key workers, I mean, I've worked, you know, in hospitals, I've been kind of non-sterile nurse in the maternity hospitals, you know, I've I've worked those sort of jobs and and watched people more professionally trained than me, you know, rushing off their feet for 12 hour shifts. I mean, you've got that sort of stuff. I mean, I used to do, like I say, as non-sterile nurse, I used to do an overnight from nine o'clock at night to seven o'clock in the morning. And I used to go home and look after my toddlers, you know, and I did it twice a week. And I can remember lying on the sofa, you know, half asleep while they were (laughs) fumbling around the floor because I was so tired. And we would get one 20 minute break in that. You know, that was 20 years ago, one 20 minute break. And I taught myself to sleep for 20 minutes and then like wake back up again and go out. And I think what I think with a lot of the, you know, the real frontline people is if you get 10 minutes, if 10 minutes is your break or 20 minutes is your break, take it. And what I see happen is in some respect, people think, oh, it's just 10 minutes. Somebody will ask them a question or ask them to do something and they feel awful saying, I'm actually on lunch right now, or, you know, this is my half an hour. And actually what they need to do is say, literally, unless it is a complete emergency, I am on lunch, go find someone else. Because like you say, just, I mean, there's a blog on my website and I, I was part of an experiment where they put electrodes on my head and measured my brain waves. And I just sat and kind of like, I'm talking to you and nothing much was going on. And then when I sat and there was like, you know, nice film I got to watch, you can see these brain waves going off all around my head. And what they were saying is your brain is consolidating, it's repairing, you know, it's thinking through things, it's problem solving, it's being creative in that downtime. So even if in the middle of your 12 hour shift, you get 20 minutes, that's actually like giving your brain the kind of PT exercise, sleep, fresh air all in one hit. 
and you will just be so much more present and effective but you will physically be calmer because you'll feel in control you know you feel like you've had that space and I literally say to people if you just look out of the window and you just breathe in and I mean you've seen me reset myself within like 45 seconds from tears you know and if you can just do that actually you'll stay more in control of your day So I think a lot of people think that this kind of downtime is all about relaxation and spas and that stuff. And and it's not. I think it's, you know, take that downtime, just look out the window, just pause for a minute. Yeah. Disengage from the world of pressure. Yeah. It's interesting because that's as you're talking there, I'm thinking about a couple of things. So within services, so if we kind of give examples of probation, police, homeless charitable services etc quite often it's seen as a badge of honor to say and I've not taken my break or I've been working for x amount of hours Mm -hmm. and I was talking to a national homelessness charity yesterday Mm -hmm. and it was really interesting because the lady that I was talking to is the head of people and HR and she was saying what they've realized as a senior leadership team Mm -hmm. during COVID is that everybody is let me think how to explain it so she said Prior to COVID, we kind of thought we deserved eight hours of everybody's day. So we were paying them eight hours a day. So therefore, we deserve eight hours of their day. And within that eight hours, we wanted them to be focused. We wanted them to have impact. We wanted them to deliver exceptional services to homeless people, Mm -hmm. entrenched rough sleepers, et cetera. Mm -hmm. We wanted them to be on the ball, attending training, doing their work, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Eight hours. Outside of that eight hours, they can go and do their family stuff, their holiday stuff, da-da-da-da-da. She said this last year of COVID has changed the organisation significantly. She mm-hmm. said what we've realised is that actually people bring their whole self to work all of the time mm-hmm. and that we don't deserve anything from them. Mm-hmm. We are part of their life and we need to support them to manage that effectively. Yeah. And she started giving me some examples of things because people are working from home and their lives are colliding. Mm-hmm. And although some of them are absolutely still out mm-hmm. doing the stuff on the streets that's needed, yeah. Lots of them are doing one-to-one work with their clients on Zoom and things like that. Mm. And she said that they've started doing things like they did a bring your child to work with you day so that it didn't matter how many times that the child appeared, mm. but also so that the child could understand what mm. brilliant work mum and dad were doing mm. and the impact that they were having. And, and then they set up something else. They did a drumming workshop for their service users mm. and the staff members could bring their kids if they wanted to. And they made or from a safeguarding perspective it was all covered Mm. and she said covid has made them realize that actually if they invest in their staff's well-being and they support their staff Mm. to manage all of these different balls they're juggling then actually the quality of what they get back is what is needed for them to then be able to deliver these services Mm. and i wonder whether because it is a cultural thing Mm. you know within organizations we all know organizations that we don't Mm. ever want to work for (laughs) it is a cultural Mm. thing and I I do wonder whether COVID is maybe going to change that a little Mm. bit because all of us doesn't matter well I do my parliamentary meetings every Tuesday and I can see all of the MPs surroundings where they live what they're doing who's coming in and out Mm. it's those type of things that yeah I I think it's it's humanized us hasn't it you know and I think for me it's been quite interesting because I always worked on zoom I mean I did face-to-face as well so for me it's just not doing face-to-face but I think it's humanized people and I think people 
I think there's a lot of people, and I will say this, and you know, maybe you'll disagree, but I think especially I see a lot of men who leave the house in the morning and it's like, I must not worry about the argument I've had with my partner and I must not worry about the fact that I'm missing out on my kids' play or that, you know, I'm not get, getting on with my kid even. And I must go to work and be this sort of big boss and, and do everything right and be really dynamic. And actually I'm sitting there, you know, missing my kids and missing my partner or whatever. And I think, you know, that's something I've seen a lot of men and, you know, they come in almost suicidal and crying, just saying, you know, actually I just want to be a good dad and I want to be a good parent. And, you know, I'm, I'm struggling just with myself. And I think what it's done is it has shown everybody that everybody is a human being and everybody, you know, if you don't have kids, you've probably got a cat or a dog or, you know, I sit, I sit. That's the thing. I sit at the front of my house and I can sit here clearly talking to my camera and delivery drivers will come and bang on the window and I have to kind of go, I'm talking. <laughs> and I think it's made up on human. And so I do think and what I hope will happen is that that kind of community aspect of understanding you know, actually for you, you might now work until midnight because you've got kids you need to homeschool in the morning or you just don't know what people's personal circumstances anymore. And I think for a lot of women, actually, it's kind of highlighted that they're still doing a lot of the parenting and the cleaning and things as well. And actually what I've seen is, you know, that's starting to actually have some really good conversations between couples saying, I also work. But I think culturally within businesses, there are businesses that have handled it fantastically and let people be completely flexible. I mean, I remember advising at the beginning, advising a company, pick two times a day where you can come together so that people have a choice and then just let people do their stuff. Just, yeah. just let them get on with the job. And, you know, I think, yeah, some companies are doing it brilliantly and some have really struggled to do it because like you say, they've got that, well, I wanted you in for eight hours and I want it between nine and four. And you've got people saying, I, I can't do that. You know, I've got three kids under the age of six, whatever. So I definitely think it's shifted the world along in that level very, very quickly. And I think quite interestingly, the kind of the dinosaurs that don't come through with that. I think they're going to really start to have problems actually soon because I think a lot of people also now want that. You know, yeah. I know a lot of my clients were saying, I don't want to do an hour and a half commute anymore. I don't want to travel. And frankly, let's look at the climate change. You know, I think a lot of us have gone, you know what, when lots of us are working from home, it's not as bad. I haven't been able to drive through central Cambridge in the morning for 15 years. And the other day I drove straight through at half past eight. So I think there's a lot of things. I think it's climate. I think it's us. I think it's work. Uh, I think it's cultures. I think, you know, it's a general coming together of the community of the world around a virus as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. I think there's a lot, a lot going on. And certainly I see from kind of a safeguarding perspective and mm. a harm and abuse, you know, mm. there's, there's mm. lots of things that absolutely, they worry me for the future. Yeah. And I can see how actually they're being exasperated in this time mm. and vulnerable people are becoming more vulnerable. Yeah. And people that weren't, well, they were just on the edge before mm. are being pulled into mm. kind of a level of mm. vulnerability mm. that they never expected. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I see the need for mm. frontline services mm. growing and growing and growing. Yeah. But also I do see some real, real silver linings mm. to working in this way, mm. like you were talking about, about humanising people, mm. because it's great. Like I'm, I'm very fortunate. I'm surrounded by, and granted I choose who I'm surrounded by, but I'm surrounded by wonderful people with wonderful values. Yeah. But that's my window of my world. Mm. For the mm. What I'm starting to see now is just like you've said, is that that's spreading because people mm. are being forced 
to face this and for all of the difficulties that the pandemic's mm. going to have brought about without a doubt mm. there are going to be some things that each of us can hold on to to say actually it would have taken the country 20 years to be considering this <laughs> Do yes. you know? because Absolutely. we all know don't we we like to be drip fed mm. stuff and change mm. is easy mm. and but some of this stuff over the last year we've had no choice about we've had to engage with and that goes for all of the dinosaurs mm. or the mm. organizations that have got a culture of mm. you must you must you must mm. or the charities that don't mm. value their staff they mm. just expect them to turn up and do the yeah. job they're being forced to look at things differently mm. as is mm. the whole country if not yeah. the whole world really and I think I think one of those huge shifts and it, I think it was already turning when my, my eldest daughter has bipolar and she writes very openly about it and certainly in the sort of must be almost 10 years now since her diagnosis, you know, I've definitely seen this kind of acceptance of mental health and mental health issues. I mean, when she first had it, it was almost a kind of you need to try and get a job and not mentioning it. And now she's completely open about it. And I think it's really pushed forward, you know, that mental health is an issue. And, and in some respects, you know, I see a lot of companies now saying, you know, our focus for the year is going to be mental health. And I feel like saying you know, you shouldn't really get a pat on the back for that. You should have been doing that before. And, you know, obviously it's great that they are, but, you know, there's part of me going, yeah, do you know what? Your employees have always had a mental health you know, that, that's needed caring for. One of the things that obviously I feel is really good is that in businesses, they've always looked at coaching. And for me, you know, actually therapy is pretty much the thing that's often needed. And I've really seen, you know, there's companies that are really on board with it starting to push out and go, we actually recognize we need therapy support, not coach. We don't need somebody in doing goal setting and things. We need somebody who's going to go in and go, okay, so how has that issue in your childhood affected you now? It's COVID and you're stuck at home or do you know what I mean? And I think that has really pushed people forward. And I think also just, yeah, that humanizing has allowed those people in sort of leadership positions and at the front to say, I'm not coping very well. And it's almost, you know, I have a joke with my PT that, you know, if we haven't sworn about 10 times about something by the end of it, actually, you know, I thought it was brilliant. There was, I don't know if you saw it, but I think it was an MP that stood up and basically said, I don't want to hear from the people who are doing really well. I want to hear from the people that are really struggling. Yeah. Because so many people are. And I think it's so important also to just recognize it is around you. And my daughter the other day, you know, really sadly, we got an email from school saying somebody in the year above her had died. And they haven't said what it is. But you know, I'm assuming it was suicide. And that's a 17 year old, you know, and you just think you just don't know. You know, and I've had a couple of people just reach out for me, just random contacts. And I've been there for them because I think you just don't know what's going on for people. And so I think signposting, you know, mental health just becoming something that we very openly talk about. Probably 10 years ago, I never would have sat here and said, yeah, I nearly burnt out a year ago. But now I don't have any issues to do that. And I know that other people hopefully will listen and go, oh, I'm not the only one. <laughs> and, you know, when you talk about the pressures of being a mum and not managing it yourself, people will go, yeah, I totally get that. And so I think now we're starting to have those more honest emotional conversations. And I think yeah. that's the top takeaway that I hope people are getting from all of the podcasts mm. is actually how important those honest yeah. conversations are. They make all of the difference because we all do. Of course, we wear masks all of the time in different situations. Mm. But actually, that honesty mm. is what connects us at this time. We need those connections more than ever. But I would argue that if we can take those connections into the future and that new level of understanding and belief, then going right back to the beginning of what you said that mm. is the key issue for nearly everybody that you end up working with mm. 
it goes right back to self-worth. And yeah. if you're judging yourself against somebody else's mm. career trajectory or Facebook yeah. post, well, do you know, your self-worth yeah. isn't going to be great because you're, you're seeing what they want to show you. If you're judging yourself against mm. somebody else's human mistakes, then that yeah. might be yeah. more of a level, do you know? Yes. So even yeah. just that level of honesty can transform the way that we feel about ourselves. Yeah. And it's recognizing where you are. I mean, I remember, you know, the beginning of COVID, you know, everyone posting, you know, I'm doing all this baking or I've learned the guitar, I've done this. And I was thinking, oh, I'm just sitting here trying not to have a mental breakdown. <laughs> it's just, you know, actually, I'm just trying to, you know, keep a roof over my kid's head and, you know, sort my business out and not going to burn out and try not to eat the entire contents of the Cadbury's factory. Do you know what I mean? And I just think, you know, that I love those people who are doing that achievement and it's great, you know, and fantastic if it's all working for you. But I love having those conversations where it is kind of, you know, yeah, my son acknowledged me today in a, you know, a pleasant way. And I didn't get scowled at for this or, you know, I didn't put dinner on the table and somebody went, I'm not eating that. <laughs> and I was talking to a friend today and she said, and I, it's a lovely phrase, which I love. And she said when she was pregnant that somebody had said to her, when you have your child, you will love it and you will do anything for it. But there will be a time when you really don't like it. <laughs> and she said, you know, she said, this must be the worst relationship I've ever had with my son. And I said, yeah, I agree. You just want to be away from your kids at the moment. And I just think there's a wonderful humanness in us all kind of putting our hands up. Whatever your personal struggle is, there will be somebody else having it in the world somewhere. There's somebody else going through exactly what you're going through you know, if not worse, if not better, who can put their hand up and go, oh, I'm so glad that you've said blah, blah, blah. And I think that is where the human connection comes from. And I think it's been a long time coming that we stop pretending that, you know, when we go to work, we leave our emotions at the door and all of this sort of stuff. And that we say, I'm a whole person, you know, take me as I am and I'm going to have good days and bad days, but I'll be here for you on your good days and bad days and accept each other as the human beings we are. And ultimately for me, what I've learned is it comes down to self-worth. How much do you value yourself to look at the way you're treated, the way you're treating others? Can you be honest about that? And once you put yourself in first, it really is that kind of put your oxygen mask on first on the plane. Because once you're okay, you will have almost unlimitless energy to help others as long as you've got those bits in for you. And that's kind of, you know, my biggest thing for people is you have to get yourself right first. A moment ago, as you were talking, I was just thinking, oh, I'm going to start winding up this podcast and I'm going to say to Mary, Mary, is there anything you want to leave the listeners with? And it's like you read my mind because that literally is the perfect ending, isn't it? Because you started with saying how you realised from your own journey that mm. actually it all connects down to self-worth. Mm. And then you've just seamlessly brought the whole discussion back to self-worth. But with that in mind, mm. is there anything you would like to leave the listeners with before we sign off for today? Because I really enjoyed talking to you and I think you've given us all a lot to think about. And hopefully people will go across to your website and get some of those resources as mm. well. We'll put all of the details in the show notes. But what's your final thoughts? So I think for me, resilience is very linked to meaning. And I think a lot of people don't link it to meaning, but actually a lot of us have had experiences ranging from, you know, the absolute awful right up to the not so awful. And actually, you know, my work and all, all of the things that I've studied, it comes down to the meaning that you take from these things. 
you know, and if the meaning that you take is I'm not good enough, then that's going to be the trajectory of your life. But if you can look at back at all those things and think, I went through all of those things and lots of it I probably couldn't control, but the meaning I'm going to take from it is what resilience I have. I am still here. I've been through this stuff and I am bloody resilient, you know, and I'm going to keep being resilient and I'm not perfect and I don't need to be perfect. But like I said, I totally believe everyone has that bucket of resilience And if it's hidden, you just need to unlock your door and find it. And stuff happens to us that we can do absolutely nothing about. And, you know, it kind of links into what you were saying about the role. You do your best with what you can, the parameters of your role, and you do the best of what you can with the parameters of your life. And I just think it is about looking back and saying, okay, all of this stuff happened. And the meaning I'm going to take from it is, do you know what? I'm still here and I've learned all of this stuff. And it might have been a really painful learning, but I learned it. And actually, I can pass it on to other people, other people gain from me. And it is just about recognizing we are all resilient. It's not something that's dished out to some of us. We are all resilient. And it is just a matter of unlocking that cupboard and finding your bucket of resilience. And I guess the key thing is, you know, to love yourself for whoever you are in whatever is going on for you to love yourself. There's seven and a half billion of us on the planet. None of us have any right to be here more than another. You know, we all have value. So that's kind of, yeah, that's my tip, my tool, whatever. <laughs> ah, well, perfect final thoughts. As you were saying that, I was thinking that naturally my brain goes back to, you said things happen to us and we don't know, we can't do anything about them. Mm. And then we can look back at that and go, mm. okay, what are the learnings from mm. it? Well, naturally my brain goes, because of everything that I operate within the safe, mm. my brain goes immediately back to kind of childhood trauma. Yeah. But actually you yeah. could very much be talking about COVID right now yeah. because it's happening to all of us. Mm. We can't do anything about it. Mm. We've only got what we've got at the moment. Mm. But gosh, in the future, hopefully the near future, but somewhere in the future, We will be able to look back and hopefully have made it through this Mm. and take the learnings from it as well. So Mm. I guess there's this whole line of we experience difficult times Mm. at some of those traumatic, some of those not. At all points in our life, it might be going to the petrol station and getting into an argument with somebody Mm. that could have the impact Mm. on you that something Mm. else has on somebody else. And so it's recognising all of that. So Mm. Yeah, you've given us so much food for thought and so much that will be helpful for all of us as we continue processing mm. and trying to be the best that we can be. Tell people where to find you. Do you know if they want to go and listen to those recordings or if they just want to find a little bit more mm. about you, where can they find you? So the website is the sort of core of everything and all my other social contacts are on there. So it's www. and then it's mary-williams.com. And Mary, obviously, M-A-R-I. Brilliant. Well, I will make sure that that's all put in the show notes for everybody as well. Well, thank you so much for giving up your time for us today, sharing all of your top tips. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Yeah, you too. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to this podcast today. We really hope you found it enjoyable and useful. Please do click subscribe and then you'll be the first to know when we publish the next episode. And we'd love it if you could share this podcast with a friend or a colleague who might find the tips useful or resonate with the stories. If you'd like to find out any more about us or our wonderful guests, all the information can be found in the show notes. We really hope you have a wonderful day. And please remember, be kind to yourself. 
it makes all the difference.